Hello, my rebels. You know, a huge peace deal was done, but you wouldn't know it because, of course, the author of the deal was Donald Trump. And <laughs> there's no way we can give him any credit. Just pretend that he didn't solve the Arab-Israeli crisis. Well, I'll show you what really went on. Um, before I do, let me invite you to become a subscriber to Rebel News Plus. That's what we call the shows behind um, the paywall. We take this podcast and, and we have a video version of it. And it's only eight bucks a month. That's 80 bucks a year if you pay in advance. So it's way cheaper than Netflix. And I think it's the only place in Canada you're going to get the other side of the story like this. I really do. So just go to rebelnews.com and sign up and it helps us pay the bills. All right, here's today's podcast. Tonight, a massive peace deal in the Middle East, but Donald Trump negotiated it, so it's not news. It's August 17th, and this is the Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. You remember that Barack Obama won the Nobel Peace Prize, right? He won it immediately after he was elected. He hadn't done anything yet. I mean, he was nominated in the first weeks of his presidency. He just didn't do anything peace-ish. He won the Nobel Prize because, you know, he was a Democrat and a black man, and those are two good reasons for the Nobel Peace Prize Committee, which, just to remind you, isn't some highfalutin blue ribbon panel. It, it's not like the Nobel Prize for, for chemistry or physics, where you have to be the best chemist or the best physicist. Physicist. It's literally five people appointed by the left-wing Norwegian parliament. That's who chooses who gets the Nobel Peace Prize, seriously. So it would be like if Justin Trudeau and Catherine McKenna handpicked the person. Um, if they had any self-awareness, they would have rescinded Obama's award and demanded it back. In his tenure, he toppled Muammar Gaddafi in Libya, which not only lit Northern Africa on fire, it also gave a new breeding ground for terrorists reopened the ancient slave trade and, of course, started a massive refugee rush across the Mediterranean into Europe. Obama oversaw the bloody Arab Spring, which gave Islamists control of Egypt, at least until the people revolted against Obama's friends in the Muslim Brotherhood. Syria caught fire. ISIS became a de facto nation. I actually can't think of a bloodier time since World War II. Imagine giving that guy a Nobel Peace Prize. Here's the Council of Foreign Relations. Just to give you some stats, on January 23rd, 2009, just three days into his presidency, President Obama authorized his first kinetic military action, two drone strikes, three hours apart in Waziristan, Pakistan, that killed as many as 20 civilians. Two terms and 540 strikes later, Obama leaves the White House after having vastly expanding and normalizing the use of armed drones for counterterrorism and close air support operations in non-battlefield settings, namely Yemen, Pakistan, and Somalia. Now, I'm not anti-drone. I'd rather fight the bad guys over there than over here. I'd rather fight the bad guys without risking the lives of Canadian or American men and women in planes or helicopters. I'm just saying Mr. Nobel Peace Prize used drones seven times more frequently than that bad guy George W. Bush. Obama loved war. 
mainly in places that no American had been to or heard of or knew anything about. Sort of like Trudeau sending our troops to Mali for peacekeeping. No cheating, without Googling. Can you tell me on the map where Mali is? Yeah, I don't feel bad, neither can Trudeau. But he's the peace guy, you see. Anyways, Trump is the opposite. You know, he's had fights with his generals, with his first Secretary of Defense, precisely because he wanted to extricate America from foreign wars, and the generals didn't. America didn't go to war against Syria, which is what Hillary Clinton said she would do if she were president. She said she'd even shoot down Russian planes flying in Syria. If you impose a no-fly zone, first of all, how do you respond to their concerns? Secondly, if you impose a no-fly zone and a Russian plane violates that, does President Clinton shoot that plane down? Well, Chris, first of all, I think a no-fly zone could save lives and could hasten the end of the conflict. I am well aware of the really legitimate concerns that you have expressed from both the president and the general. Uh, this would not be done just on the first day. This would take a lot of negotiation. It would also take making it clear to the Russians and the Syrians that our purpose here was to provide safe zones on the ground. We've had millions of people leave Syria, and those millions of people uh, inside Syria who've been dislocated. So I think we could strike a deal and make it very clear uh, to the Russians and the Syrians that this was something that we believed was in the best interests of the people on the ground in Syria. It would help us with our fight against ISIS. Yeah, that's crazy. Trump is pulling out, pulling back. He's even pulling out of Europe making them pay their own way. I love it. He's pretty much the opposite of a warmonger. And he hasn't gone to war with Iran, even though he doesn't like Iran like Obama. He didn't send billions of dollars to Iran in pallets of cash like Obama. I don't know if it's working, his whole approach to North, North Korea. But it's been quite an effort of Trump's to make peace there, better than anyone else has done. My point is, Trump isn't the dangerous cowboy he was accused of being. He certainly killed fewer foreigners and Americans than Obama did or Hillary Clinton would have. And now this, the biggest surprise of all, at least to me, I didn't think it would ever happen. I remember Trump bragging about doing the biggest peace deal, the biggest deal, the deal of the century, he called it, in the Middle East. And I thought, you know, some deals can't be done. Those folks have been fighting literally since biblical times but look at this, look at this. Here's the news in the New York Times. I chose this paper because they're really Trump's biggest enemy, and they're not particularly a fan of Israel either, but they just couldn't help but admit the obvious. This was a massive deal. Let me quote, Israel and United Arab Emirates strike major diplomatic agreement. President Trump announced that Israel and the United Arab Emirates would establish, quote, full normalization of relations, and that in exchange, Israel would forgo for now declaring sovereignty over occupied West Bank territory. They put four reporters on the story with the byline, and they had four other reporters who they credited for researching it. So the New York Times put eight staff on this story. That's incredible. It's a huge story. I won't even go into it other than, can I just read a little bit about Trump's role and the meaning? Just give me one minute. In a surprise announcement at the White House, after a three-way phone call with Israeli and Emirati leaders, Mr. Trump said the deal would lead to greater cooperation on investment, tourism, security, technology, energy, and other areas, while the two countries move to allow regular direct passenger flights, open embassies, and trade ambassadors for the first time. 
If fulfilled, the pact would make the Emirates only the third Arab country to have normal diplomatic relations with Israel, along with Egypt, which signed a peace agreement in 1979, and Jordan, which signed a treaty in 1994. It could reorder the long stalemate in the region, potentially leading other Arab nations to follow suit in forging an increasingly explicit alliance with Israel against their mutual enemy in Iran, while taking Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's explosive annexation plan off the table, at least for now, unquote. That's a big deal. The United Arab Emirates, you know, that's the place with Dubai, right? With Abu Dhabi. It's the most liberal, most progressive, most modern, most Western parts of Arabia. You know, the Burj Khalifa, that's the tallest tower in the world. That place, they just made a deal with Israel. Here's a pretty cool tweet by Netanyahu about it. I'll sort of translate. He, he basically says, the United Arab Emirates is one of the most powerful and advanced countries in the world. As you can see, it is also one of the most beautiful places in the world. Yesterday, we made peace for peace. And he says that in Arabic and Hebrew. Salam Aleikum, Shalom Aleichem. I thought that was pretty cool. And now I see that not only will there be direct flights between Tel Aviv and Dubai, but there are negotiations that those flights would pass over Saudi Arabia. I think that's pretty incredible. Uh, look at this in the Globe and Mail. Israel says that other moderate Gulf states are next in line. Oman, Bahrain. These are more moderate Gulf states that share the UAE's general outlook and know that Iran is a great threat to all of them, and Israel is the best counterweight to that. And they also don't know why their ties to Israel should be held up because of intransigence on the part of the PLO or Hamas, which keeps sabotaging peace deals with Israel, who reject peace deals every time they get offered. Uh, you see things like this. Netanyahu being interviewed live on Arabic satellite TV. In this case, the interviewer was speaking Arabic. Netanyahu was getting a translation, answering in English, and they had a translator in Arabic. But the, the questions were genu genuine interview questions, not anti-Semitic harangues. Both sides seem eager and excited. Peace, prosperity, getting over a hatred. You know, it takes energy to stay mad. Why would Israel and Dubai have any reason to be mad at each other? Why, because Hamas or Iran wants them to? Oh, look at this. Iran and Turkey, which are both Islamist, hate this deal. For some reason, China likes it. I don't quite know why. I see that Israel is in talks with the U.S. about banning Huawei, and that's good news. So, look, I'm excited. Wouldn't it be great if peace broke out? It's so unthinkable. You'll notice in the New York Times piece, they say they were surprised by the announcement. Trump managed to do this huge deal, and so did Israel and the UAE, without any media leaks. That is very surprising, isn't it? I see hints that other African countries might join too. There are Muslim countries in Africa, of course. Did Donald Trump just get a big Middle East peace deal? Did he get the deal of the century? Not just some PR announcement, but a real deal? Maybe, as Netanyahu described it, it was peace for peace, not peace for land or peace for cash. Both sides want the same thing. They want peace. It's true Israel says it won't annex Palestinian territories. But Israel has not annexed those territories since Israel recaptured them in the War of 1967. So if Israel hasn't felt the need to change their name in the past 53 years, I don't think that's an onerous concession for Israel to make. I think it's peace for peace. And the promise not to annex helps the deal go down more sweetly in the Arab street. That's fine by me. Look at this tweet by a senior Muslim imam in the UAE. He said, the happiness of the Israeli people with the peace agreement shocked me. I was not expecting it. The peoples want peace. Now, I think that's funny because 
you got to imagine the misinformation, the mistrust that he actually thought Israel didn't want peace. He believed that, and he's shocked that they do. Now the countries can talk. They can actually visit each other. They can do business with each other. They can live a little bit more like neighbors now. I read more from that Muslim imam. He's based, I think, in Abu Dhabi, which is the capital of the UAE. He's got more than a million and a half followers on Twitter, so he's a bit of a big deal in the UAE. Here's a few more of his comments. Let me just read a few of them. The same as Wasim Youssef. He says, here he is. He's mad that Al Jazeera was criticizing the deal. He was hurt by Al Jazeera. Of course he was. Here he is, startled that Jewish Israelis were putting up UAE flags while Palestinians were burning UAE flags, calling the UAE sellouts. He, he, he can't believe what he's seeing. He said, when I saw the flag of my country being burned by some Palestinians because of the peace treaty with Israel, I apologize to every Israeli man if you offended him in the past. Right. And this guy's like the Billy Graham of the UAE in terms of size and influence, I think, from what I can find. He was thrilled the peace deal, but just as much he's furious that there are those who want no peace for the UAE for their own reasons. I think his reaction is a really good sign. There really are moderate Muslim leaders in the world, I think. Tell me that's not good news for everyone. It's not just good news for Israel. But alas, besides Iran and Turkey and the PLO hating this deal, you guessed it, the anti-Trump, anti-Israel clique in the West hates it. So obviously the CBC hates it. Look at this hilarious headline. It's in the CBC. Bahrain, Oman could be next to normalized relations with Israel. Sure, fine. But Saudi Arabia, not so fast. You know what said? It would happen fast. No one even mentioned that. But here's the CBC. They're trying to find a downside here. I mean, because their guy, Barack Hussein Obama, lit the fire uh, on the Middle East, burned the place down brought back open-air slave markets in Libya, let ISIS run unimpeded for four years. The CBC can't be happy that Trump has achieved what their Marxist hero couldn't. Look at how the CBC's show that The National treated this huge, huge deal. Lighting up City Hall in Tel Aviv tonight, the blue and white of Israel, and as well, the green, white, black, and red of the United Arab Emirates. Just a few moments ago, I hosted a very special call with two friends. Donald Trump with the surprise announcement this morning. After 49 years, Israel and the United Arab Emirates will fully normalize their diplomatic relations. Trump's call with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and UAE's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed is said to have sealed the deal. This is the greatest advancements toward peace between Israel and the Arab world in the last 26 years. Israel struck a peace accord with Egypt in 79 and with Jordan in 1994, but most other Arab countries have failed to recognize Israel. Until now, says Trump, stay tuned. Now that the ice has been broken, I expect more Arab and Muslim countries will follow the United Arab Emirates lead. A key part of the agreement, Israel will suspend plans to annex chunks of Palestinian territory in the West Bank. In return, Israel gets that long-wanted recognition from another Arab country. Then there's Iran. Along with the U.S., both Israel and the UAE see that country as a constant threat. The deal strengthens opposition against Iran within the region. But Palestinians quickly turned thumbs down on all of it, a government spokesman today calling it a betrayal. Palestinians have long urged Arab countries to steer clear of Israel until Israel agrees to lasting peace with Palestinians. 
For Donald Trump, it's a big foreign policy achievement, just as his re-election campaign is set to begin in earnest. Low in the polls, he seemed happy with how it's all playing out. It's a great, great thing, he said. Mm. And Paul, uh, speaking of the election, Trump is continuing to weigh in on how he thinks voting will actually play out. Yeah, it's all about how to actually conduct the vote in November. What was that, two and a half minutes or so? Maybe three? And no questions from the, the generic CBC anchor. He couldn't wait to move off Trump's diplomatic triumph into the weird Democratic talking points about postal ballots. He literally didn't have a moment's interest in the biggest peace deal of the last generation. He couldn't care less because Trump was the guy. I wonder if he would have been so quick to brush it off. I don't know if it were his hero or Obama. And did you hear that one line by Paul Hunter? Palestinians have long urged Arab countries to steer clear of Israel until Israel agrees to lasting peace with Palestinians. So the CBC is saying that the problem in the Middle East has been that Israel just won't give the Palestinians the promise of lasting peace. That's the problem, guys. You know, the PLO, Hamas, they really, really want peace, guys. It's just, what can they do? Israel just won't give it to them. Is that actually true? Sure it is in the fake news, just like the Nobel Peace Prize fake committee. They'll probably give the peace prize to Barack Obama again, or maybe they'll give it to the PLO. Yeah, no, we've just had a major peace deal, and it was done by Donald Trump, and it looks like it's real and sustainable, and it could grow, and it's based on mutual interests, not temporary arm twisting. I'd say the president, give the president his Nobel Peace Prize, but why would you want to give him such a sullied partisan award? Stay with us for more on this with Joel Pollack. And joining us now to talk about the big news of the week. Well, I guess there's a couple of big news items. Kamala Harris being chosen Joe Biden's running mate. But I want to talk about something that I think is the largest news, maybe of the year. I can't say it's the biggest news of the year. It's been such a momentous year for news. But I'm talking about Donald Trump's peace plan that he negotiated between Israel and the United Arab Emirates and, it seems, Soon to come, other Gulf states, Bahrain, Oman, and some African countries. Our friend Joel Pollack, senior editor-at-large at Breitbart.com. Joel, I didn't think a deal like this could be done. Um, I was skeptical. I mean, Trump likes to talk superlatively. He wants to do the deal of the century. I thought he's going to give everything away. In the end, it was truly a peace-for-peace peace deal. It wasn't a PLO-style land-for-peace cash for peace. I think this is a real deal. It looks like it is. And it was particularly interesting because we have been told for four years that Donald Trump's approach to foreign policy doesn't work, that he's too mean to our allies, that he has no clout on the world stage, that America's leadership is fading. And this deal proves all of that wrong. First of all, he's respected by our allies, by Israel and by the United Arab Emirates. He has tremendous clout. He's able to get these two countries, which have never had diplomatic relations, to come together and really break new ground in Middle Eastern relations. And he's respected on the world stage. This would not have happened if Donald Trump hadn't been respected as a deal maker. 
And it was the peace process he laid out in January that created a framework for this. And that peace process was maligned by the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Democrats and CNN. They said it was one-sided, it only favored Israel. No, all it did was take away the veto that Palestinians have over the process. It allows for a Palestinian state, but it says that they have to meet certain requirements. And it also says they're not going to be able to stop the process. Peace in the Middle East goes on whether they want it to or not. And that's the genius of the Trump administration's approach. And it's worked. And it's basically taking the foreign policy argument off the table for Joe Biden and the Democrats, because everything Biden and his advisors believed about the Middle East was wrong. The Iran deal was a failure. Appeasing terrorists didn't work. And standing strong with Israel didn't antagonize the Arab world. It merely showed who Israel's potential partners really were. And this is a tremendous, tremendous deal and a big success for the Trump administration and for the United States. I think it's very exciting. And I like the friendly, positive, person-to-person type spirit that has already been shown in the last few days. I love when Netanyahu ran a video basically encouraging Israelis to do tourism in Dubai. Um, I mean, he really romanced uh, the United Arab Emirates as a great place to go. And you know, flying from Tel Aviv to Dubai, that's a pretty short flight. I bet that's gonna become incredibly popular. Sort of like people, oh, let's go to Vegas for the weekend. I think think it's gonna be very popular. You read my mind, it's like LA to Vegas. No, that's exactly what it'll be. It'll be a commercial route that's well-traveled, one that connects Europe to Asia through the Middle East where Tel Aviv and Dubai form a kind of commercial hub together. And you combine Israeli innovation and high tech and business management and financial clout with Dubai's energy contacts and its commercial and retail side and its recreational opportunities. You have an amazing opportunity for tremendous wealth to be created for the people of the region. And the other states are not gonna wanna be left behind. So they're going to wanna be included in this And that's why you're going to see other Gulf states come forward and do the same thing that the UAE has done. It remains to be seen what happens in the election in November. And I do think that we're going to take several steps backward if Biden wins, because he has said he wants to go back to the Iran deal. But one good thing about this deal is it's very hard to undo. Biden's not going to be able to roll back peace between Israel and the UAE. And in fact, Trump has shown Biden and the Democrats there is actually a better way than the one Obama and Biden were trying. The better way is simply to be strong and to be strong, stand with our allies and not commit resources to the Middle East that we can't deliver, not uh, state back red lines like we did with Syria under Obama and Biden, and then not enforce them not to promise the Iraqi people protection and then fail to negotiate a deal as Biden did in in 2011. So the Obama administration and Joe Biden's role in, in that foreign policy is fast becoming a very bitter memory. And there is a danger we'd go back to it, but this deal has been so successful, maybe it's even a wake up call for the Democrats who've realized that Trump's way of approaching foreign policy does actually work, that placing America's interests first tends to align things in our direction and in a positive direction, whereas apologizing for America, appeasing Iran, and trying to set up some other sort of hegemon in the Middle East to replace us is just a recipe for disaster. Yeah. You know, I've been looking at individual United Arab Emirates Twitter uh, personalities. I know that's 
that's not a real proxy for the people on the street, but if you're an influencer in the UAE, and it's been very positive. In fact, I think some of them were startled that Israel was so friendly and that Israel really wanted this. Um, I, I think even to see Arab language satellite TV stations ask Netanyahu fairly good faith questions, I, I, this feels like a warmer piece than that between Israel and Egypt or even Israel and Jordan. They have had peace deals for years or decades, but this actually feels like maybe more like-minded people, like maybe the people of Dubai and, and Abu Dhabi, as you say, are high energy, let's go do it, let's not take no for an answer, let's make the desert bloom. Like that, that's one of Israel's sort of mottos, make the desert bloom, drain the swamp, you know, actually turn sand into a livable place. That's what Dubai did too. It took a nothing place and made it quite a something. There are some cultural, energetic, entrepreneurial similarities, maybe even more so than between Israel and, and its past two Arab peace partners. Yeah, I think this is gonna be a warm peace. I think that the other interesting thing about Dubai is it's an international hub already. It's not provincial, it's not mired in the politics of the Arab world or the Muslim world. Although it is an Arab and Muslim state, it is also heavily populated by people from all over the world who come there to work, Americans, South Africans, Indians, people come from all over the world. And Dubai is an international capital, not quite at the level of New York or London, but they certainly see themselves getting there. And I think they look at Israel as part of that cosmopolitan approach. And they would like to do it in their own way. They would like to have a cosmopolitanism with an Islamic or Arab flavor. And I think they'll get there. And the only way to do it was to make peace with Israel. I think they kept running into problems over and over again of international events that were complicated in Dubai because they were excluding Israelis, like Israeli tennis players or chess players. And eventually they stopped doing that. And you've seen a similar move in other places in the, in the Gulf, where they've stopped enforcing some of their uh, discriminatory laws against uh, Israelis, which amount to basically discriminating against Jews. So I think Dubai is sincere. I think Israelis will love Dubai. I can just imagine the lines at the duty-free shopping counters in the Dubai airport now uh, when the Israelis discover <laughs> that they can go there. Uh, so I, I think it's going to be a really interesting cultural exchange and it's, it's, it's wonderful news for the future. Yeah, it's really hard to deal with good news. I mean, it's so alien. I don't, I can't think of any, I was saying that this is the biggest news story of 2020. That's probably not true, but maybe it's the biggest good news story of 2020. Right, hey, so far, so far. That's right, I mean, hopefully there'll be more. Uh, I don't want to keep you too much longer because I know how busy you are, but give me a couple words on Kamala Harris. I remember when you and I were talking, oh, about a year ago, about the race, and you thought that she had a real chance to be the nominee. She flamed right. out. She was murdered, in a way, by Tulsi Gabbard in one of the debates, I recall. Boy, did she fade fast. But look at her now, vice president, and a heartbeat away from being president uh, if the, the Democrats win. Like, she's, she's had a real comeback. I, I mean, obviously, there's that little thing called an election in the way, but boy, she's had a, a renaissance. Yeah, she has. And she's a good vice presidential candidate for Joe Biden for the same reasons she was a good presidential candidate on paper. She checks all the boxes in terms of identity politics. She's a member of the progressive left, but she served as a prosecutor, which gives Democrats an excuse to call her a moderate. Although, funny enough, 
She was on the campaign trail for a year running for president, and no one ever called her a moderate then. Hmm. But they're able to squeeze her into whatever box they want. I don't think she's a very good politician. She ran one of the worst campaigns in history. I don't think she'd be a good manager of anything. The pattern in her career is whenever she has a little bit of a power, she abuses it. And I don't think she adds much to the ticket in terms of bringing actual moderate or independent voters across. I think she's there to appease the progressive base, which is uncomfortable with Joe Biden, who's not a moderate, but he's not a socialist either. And the action is all on the socialist side right now. He's also an old white guy with some ailing faculties. And I think the progressive left, which is the source of energy right now in the Democratic Party, really feels like they deserved to have Bernie Sanders or someone like that on the top of the ticket. Kamala Harris is not exactly beloved by the Bernie Sanders progressive base, but they'll take her. It's it's better than some of the alternatives. And so I think this was a pick designed to cement party unity. And the Democrats are going to try to run a turn out the base type of election. They're not really appealing to independents. They'll try. I mean, you'll hear Republicans obscure, by the way, obscure has been Republicans uh, endorsing Joe Biden, but it, it's not really fooling anyone. They're not really appealing to anyone but their core constituency. And likewise with the Republicans. I mean, Trump is basically appealing to the Trump fans and the independents are quietly going to make their choice. I don't think either party's really uh, got them, at least publicly, but I think you have to think that the unrest in the cities has pushed many independent voters back toward Donald Trump in the last few months. Yeah, I've heard that's happening in even in Washington state in some of the rural and smaller towns. People are saying, whoa, we don't like what's going on in the cities. Let me show one super quick clip to you. This is from um, Stephen Colbert, who was interviewing uh, Kamala Harris and, and said, well, what about you calling him? Uh, well, I mean, basically Kamala Harris called out uh, Joe Biden very stringently accusing him of racism, of, uh, of being uh, either a sexual harasser himself or blind to women who were targeted that way. And she just laughed it off. Here, take a quick look at this clip. Because in those debates, you landed haymakers on Joe Biden. I mean, they were, his teeth were like chiclets all over the stage. And now I believe you that you're fully supportive of him. How does that transition happen? How do you go from being such a passionate opponent on such bedrock principles for you? And, and now you guys seem to be pals. It was a debate. <laughs> Not everybody landed punches like you did, though. It was <laughs> a debate. <laughs> so you don't mean it. It was a debate that the whole reason, literally, it was a debate. It was called a debate. Everyone I understand. Traveled to the debate. There were journalists there covering the debate where there would be a debate. That laughter, that just, that reminded me of Hillary Clinton. I don't know what the laughing was about, but I don't think she answered it just saying, oh, it was a debate. I, I think that looked awful, but did, did that excuse work? It seemed to work with Stephen Colbert. I think it works because it's honest. I think she is explaining that she said what she needed to say for political reasons, and that's exactly what it was. And that's who she is. She will do and say anything to get ahead. That's Kamala Harris. I think it was a rare moment of honesty. She's basically saying, hey, I was playing the game. That's how the game is played. You attack your opponent in the primary, and then you come together in the general. I don't think that sort of thing is going to trip her up. What will trip her up is the sense of her character that people have, that she basically is an abusive personality in public office. And we've seen that. We've seen with the way she's treated Brett Kavanaugh, 
the way she tried to compare ICE agents to the Ku Klux Klan, the way she prosecuted an anti-abortion filmmaker, the only person ever to be prosecuted under California's laws against surreptitious recording. He was basically doing investigative journalism, which everybody else does, but he's the only person ever charged with this crime. And she also tried to expose the donors of conservative organizations. She's basically abused her power. And as Rudy Giuliani said it very memorably, this is a clip you might want to find. She's a bully and she went after little people right. and ignored big people when she was a prosecutor. Right. And that's who she is. Right. That, and that's a great point because Rudy Giuliani, he went after the biggest people he could find. He took down the mob in New York. Joe Paul, yeah. great to catch up with you. Thanks so much for this. Uh, such interesting times. We're in. I appreciate you giving us a moment of your time. Thanks so much. All right, there you have it, Joel Pollack, Senior Editor-at-Large at Breitbart.com. Stay with us. More ahead. Hey, welcome back. I'm on our show Friday, introducing all our new talent, John writes. Great additions all. I'm very happy with the fighting a rebel spirit in each of them, as well as the existing team. Keep fighting for freedom. Thank you. You know, I really enjoy the team spirit and the fact that it's not just one or two guys and gals. It's a whole team of us. There's so many stories to cover. It's such a big country and such a big world. We really do need all hands on deck. Of course, it costs money, which is why we're always crowdfunding. But look, that's a better way to do it rather than ask for money from Justin Trudeau like our competitors do, right? Paul writes, great team building. I like the new members. Well, I'm glad you do. I, I like to see them in action. And I can hardly wait to, when we put our new teammates on adventures. You know what I mean by that? Send them on missions, maybe do a story even overseas. I mean, right now the pandemic has got us all locked down. But you'll recall, for example, Sheila Gunn-Reed always goes to the UN Global Warming Conference every year, wherever that is. She went to Madrid, Spain with Kian last time. And so I'm excited about taking our new talent and seeing them operate in different terrain. Anyways, there's a lot of stories ahead for us to cover. I'm really glad you like the new folks. And uh, that's it for today. Until tomorrow. Uh, until I see you again. On behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, good night and keep fighting for freedom.